Good morning. It's so good to see all of you. I'm so glad I get to be here today and get to see your beautiful faces. And we get to talk about each other. We get to talk about women today. What's a better topic than that? Uh, And you are some great ones, so it's fun to be here. I wanted to open by reading the lyrics to a song some of you may remember. I have memories of my mom singing this song around the house. I am woman, hear me roar. (laughs) And numbers too big to ignore. And I know too much to go back and pretend. Because I've heard it all before. And I've been down there on the floor. And no one's ever going to keep me down again. Yes, I'm wise. But it's wisdom born of pain. Yes, I've paid the price. But look how much I've gained. If I have to, I can do anything. I'm strong. I am invincible. I am... You got it. You know that song. (laughs) Helen Reddy, 1970, makes sense that this song was written then because the women's liberation movement was sort of coming into its own at that time. In fact, I think those Virginia Slim commercials were on at the same time. And... uh, They kind of got rich riding the back of the feminist movement at that time. I don't even know if they still exist, the Virginia Slims. I don't know. Anyway, I remember the jingle totally because it was everywhere. You've come a long way, baby, to get where you've got to today. You've got your own cigarette now, baby. (laughs) You've come a long, long way. I have a cigarette. It's proof. Look how far we've come. Okay. I do think there were some inequalities for women then and definitely misperceptions about womanhood. And so women were searching for value and worth during this time. And they often looked for it in the wrong places. Um, They decided their careers where they'd find their value. They decided other people's where they'd find their value, a, a certain philosophy, a lifestyle, achievements. In 2013, 2013, we figured it all out. Or not. (laughs) Across the world, grave inequalities for women. We had uh, wonderful uh, men from Africa for dinner this week at our home. And the man just looked at me and said, women are so mistreated in our country. And it just grieved his heart. There's misperceptions about womanhood. Women are still looking for worth and value. And guess what? If you don't know God, what, what are you going to do? You're going to look in the wrong places because you want to feel that emptiness in your heart. And that's what women are doing in this world. And you and I as Christian women, we even find ourselves tempted to look to the world. To build our self-esteem and feel important and feel valuable. And when we do this, we are disappointed. Because this is a broken place. This is a broken world. It's a disloyal world. It is an unfair world. And it's selfish. If we as women turn our eyes upward, look to God we can discover this truth that truly is incredible, freeing, and totally fulfilling that there is a God and He loves us 
and he values us and we can find our worth in him. And if we ever begin to doubt that, we can witness our worth to see how Jesus interacted with women. We are reminded we have great worth in God's eyes because of how he treated women. And I think in our hearts right now, we all need to just stop and praise God. Because this means everything to us as women. Who you are today, how you get to live, how you get to worship, how you get to make an impact in the world, and how you have the peace that passes understanding all comes from the fact that you are valued and have your worth in God and in God alone. Um, Jesus offers release for every woman that is oppressed inwardly and oppressed outwardly. And even if the world continues to outwardly mistreat women, which I believe will happen until the day we get to be with Jesus, Jesus can still strengthen the inner heart of a woman with the truth of their worth and value in God's eyes. And only Jesus offers this. I don't know any other faith in this whole world that raises up the value of women like Christianity does. And we can be so grateful for that. We are the only faith that views women as God views us. The rest of the world that doesn't, we see the horrible consequences of that. So what is God's view? Okay, God spoke our worth at creation. We see it written in the Old Testament. Women were God's idea. God doesn't have a bad idea. So when God created mankind, the worth of a woman was established. Both man and woman were made in the image of God himself. Look on your verse sheet, Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female he created them. And to be made in God's image means that we, as women and men, share in the nature of God, of God himself, his emotion, his intellect, and his will. That's why we're not an animal. That's why we're different than an animal. We're made in the image of God. And if we share in this incredible privilege, we have to be aware of this uh, life-impacting truth for our life, that God loves both man and woman. God has plans for both man and woman, and God equips both men and women to be in this world and bring glory to himself. So you and I can face the world every day with that truth deep embedded in our heart, and so we have that joy and understanding as we approach life. And this is unlike women who don't realize they were created in the image of God, with value from God. I read a part of a book this summer about Ernest Hemingway's first wife. Maybe some of you read that. And it was interesting to me. His first I think he had four or five wives. This was number one. And uh, her worth was totally wrapped up in being Ernest Hemingway's wife. And it was so sad because he went out of town one time for, I think, a couple months because he was a journalist. And she tells about, um, the book tells you about how she could hardly get out of bed because everything she was depended on him being at her side. All her worth 
came from being married to him. And she wept and wept for weeks and hardly even got out of bed. And when you read it, you just, you feel so sorry for her. You just think you don't know that you wear the stamp of the image of God on your life. That's enough reason to get up out of bed. I wanted to go into the book and say, you're wonderful. Get up. It was so sad. This is the truth. God creates us with value and purpose. How do we know that? We look at God's son. He displayed our words. In the New Testament, Jesus entered a world when he came to Israel at that time in history. He entered a world that had very much lost sight of the worth of a woman. Uh, Women were property as much as anything. So I made a little list of some facts about what Jewish women's condition was at the time of Jesus coming on the scene. Women took no part, the Jewish women, in public life apart from being mourners at funerals. Okay, that, and I'm sure that was really fun. <laughs> I thought about women gathering together saying, what do you want to do today? Well, we can't really do anything. We could go mourning. <laughs> Not too fun. A Jewish woman didn't attend public religious ceremonies. Schools were for boys only. Women sat apart from men in the synagogue, had their separate entrance in the temple. Men didn't speak to women except for their own wife and children. Women had no authority in society, were considered greatly inferior to men. Until a woman was married, she was subject to her father and had no rights of possession. So if she produced anything, her father owned it. Only the father could accept or refuse a marriage invitation. Uh, The contract was made without any part of the women's involvement between the men, the two heads of the family. If you were married, it signified that you were legally uh, acquired by another man. You were bought. You were a legal acquisition. A man then could easily divorce you if he thought he was tired of you or if you looked at him the wrong way or if you burned the, the toast or whatever. Then you pretty much had nothing. In a legal situation, a woman's testimony or her witness was not even allowed. A woman's honor was strictly connected to her domestic duties. One man said this, they had become second-class Jews, excluded from worship and the teaching of God with a status scarcely above that of slaves. And there was an ancient synagogue prayer you could often hear on the lips of the rabbis, Blessed art thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. But then, woman's creator took on flesh and came to set the record straight and arrived in Israel. Jesus pulled women out of the hopeless state of being property to the privileged position of being a child of God. Look at Galatians 4. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I think Jesus treated women with the same love in which he created them. 
And the reality of that is his actions would have been considered wrong and radical at that time. But Jesus was reintroducing and modeling God's original design for women that had gotten lost in the uh, years. And the manner in which Jesus related to women demonstrated that they were equal heirs in the kingdom of God. Here's some ways you could just list. I wrote four numbers down for you there. He spoke to women. He spoke to Jewish women. He spoke to Gentile women. And he befriended them. Not done. Not done at that time. And he treated these women as people worthy of compassion and his attention. Secondly, he ignored the ritual impurity laws. He touched women that were considered unclean, Gentiles, sick, sinners. He taught women. Jewish tradition didn't allow this at this time. In fact, one uh, saying that they had was, rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. If you can imagine. And Jesus, I love this when I thought about it, Think about a lot of the parables of Jesus. He put women's stories in his parables so that women could learn truth throughout his parables so that when he was teaching, he wasn't just thinking, I've got, I'm just going to focus on these men in the room or these men on the hillside. He inserted women's daily things that they would have been a part of into his parables because he knew women uh, were out there and could be learning truth as well. He used terminology which treated women as equal to men. In our homework, we looked at the time Jesus was in a synagogue and a a crippled woman who was bent over, he healed her on the Sabbath. And he called the woman a daughter of Abraham. Now, nobody had ever heard that phrase before and nobody else was ever going to use that phrase Jesus used that phrase when he healed that woman, meaning that women had equal status with the sons of Abraham, the Jewish men. And if they had equal status, they had equal rights to the promises and the blessings that began with Abraham years before. In fact, look at Luke 13 on your sheet. This is after Jesus healed this woman. He said, Should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Women had the privilege of being also involved in Jesus' time on earth, starting with his entrance into our world and going all the way until he left this world in his ascension and everything about his life in between. I'm going to read through these real quickly, but I think they're very encouraging. First person to be told, after all the years of waiting and praying, the time has come for the Messiah to come. The first person to know that, Mary. And God used her to play an important part, definitely, in God becoming flesh. The first person to welcome this unborn child into our world, Mary's cousin Elizabeth. 
while the, she's still carrying Jesus in the womb. And Elizabeth greets him as he comes into her home. First person to announce to the world that this child, Jesus, would be the redemption of Israel. You studied her, Anna, in the temple who had been praying to see Israel's redemption. First person to play a role in Jesus' first miracle, his mother Mary, when he changed the water into wine. The people who traveled with Jesus and his disciples and cared for her, their uh, needs, a group of women who'd been cured of disease and other afflictions. Two of the longest recorded conversations in the New Testament, Jesus with two women, two Gentile women. The first people at the tomb after Jesus was crucified, the women who loved and followed Jesus, the first person to be a witness to Jesus' res resurrection, the women who went to anoint his body after Passover, the first person the resurrected Jesus spoke to, a woman named Mary Magdalene. One of the people that Jesus came into this world to save and redeem, a woman named... You fill in the blank. Put your name in there. Here are two of the most powerful ways that Jesus displayed a woman's true worth. He let women participate in his ministry as well as be recipients of his ministry. And I think he did both of these things expressing the kind of unconditional love that I don't think a woman would have known was even possible at that time. So as participants in his ministry, women offered provision for him. So turn in your Bibles to Luke 8. One through three. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. It's hard for us not to envision when Jesus is traveling and preaching and ministering, what, what first comes to your mind? Jesus and 12 disciples, like a little pack, following him everywhere. And that was the case. But there were also a group of women who would have been considered disciples of Jesus that came with them and financially helped them and met their needs and provided many things for them. These were women that traveled with him. They had been sick. They had been lost, they had been demon-possessed, and they had been healed. One of those women was named Mary Magdalene, and it says she was cured of seven evil spirits. In the Bible, seven is a number of completion. So probably that means she was completely demon-possessed. Who knows? Who knows what her life was like before her creator came to her? There was a woman named Joanna, married to the manager of Herod's household, if you can imagine. I'm sure God used that later on to spread the truth. But some people think Joanna's husband was the officer in John chapter 4 whose son Jesus healed, which would make sense if this woman Joanna was entirely devoted to Jesus. Maybe he healed her son. 
Those that Jesus forgave and healed, he used their financial resources to help him, and Jesus let them help him, and this would have been viewed as scandalous. Back then, a rabbi might let a man help him financially, but never a woman. But Jesus saw these women as disciples, and he let them serve him, and they gleaned from his teachings. Every time he taught a crowd, they were learning at the same time. And then women offered fellowship. Turn to chapter 10. Verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the only time we meet Mary and Martha in the book of Luke, but in the other Gospels, we meet them often with their brother Lazarus, who later on Jesus raises from the dead. Um, and we get the idea that they were an important part of Jesus' life and important friends. And we can only imagine how draining that would have been for Jesus to do his ministry. All of the walking, all of the crowds, sometimes thousands around him, um, lack of sleep, probably not the best meals, teaching, healing, touching, all these things. So the refuge of a home like Mary and Martha offered with good friends, good food, good fellowship would be a ministry in Jesus' life. Uh, Mary and Martha lived in Bethany, which was about two miles east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. Um, this is probably because they call this Martha's house. It means she was the older sister. Mary was the younger one. And once again in this story, we see Jesus doing what that wasn't being done by the Jewish religious leaders. He is teaching Mary. Martha wants to serve Jesus elaborately, which is kind and thoughtful. And she's distracted. Because she's doing all these things. And I found out that the word distracted actually means dragging all around. So she's dragging, dragging all around. And every time she passes the kitchen door looking into the living room, is she going to stir the lamb stew? There's Mary just sitting there, sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's mad about it. And she's getting madder and madder and stirring that stew up. She finally goes to Jesus and complains, look at her, why doesn't she help me? But you know what, she's just as irritated with Jesus, because she says, don't you care? Don't you care about my work and what I'm having to do? I love how Jesus is so tender in his response by saying her name, Martha, Martha. He's giving her time to take deep breaths.
Here's what he's saying. Martha, don't let the unimportant things in life overshadow the one thing that you need, me. Jesus, his words, his relationship, meditating on who he is, his presence. And when we look at the picture of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, we get the envision of an individual who is depending on on Jesus for their life that's what's eternal that's what can never be taken away she has chosen the good and the right thing to do Mary Martha's hospitality I think was a physical oasis for Jesus in the midst of his hectic ministry but Jesus accepting their hospitality was a spiritual oasis for two sisters who came to believe that this friend, having hummus in the living room, they would come to believe he was the Son of God. How great that Jesus spent time with them and they with him. And then women were entrusted with truth. What is the greatest truth we can know today? It's the same as the greatest truth you could have known back then. That one day, a man named Jesus, who was killed and crucified and left for dead, rose from the dead. The greatest truth any of us could know, because everything about who we are and about who God is rests on that incident. Everything was realized because of that. On the day that a carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus overcame death and God entrusted that unbelievable truth first to a group of women and later Mary Magdalene would be the first to see this Jesus resurrected face to face what's interesting about this is this is at a time when Israel had decided that a woman's testimony had no merit at all and couldn't even be used in a legal court but Jesus chose women to be the first witnesses to testify about who he really was and Ted likes to think of this as another proof of the resurrection because if anyone wanted to fake the resurrection of Jesus they would never have said, I know, let's get a group of women together and say they saw him. It's the last thing they would have done. Look at Luke 24. Verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again? Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. I love this story. We see these women's devotion for Jesus. They wait for the Passover to end, and on Sunday morning while the sun is still, 
not even up yet. They are preparing the spices so they can go back to the body of Jesus and prepare him for burial. And the Gospel of Mark tells us as they were walking, they were talking to each other. Who's going to move the stone away? How are we going to move that big stone away? And they're thinking and they look up from a distance and they see the stone is rolled away. And I think the women's hearts stopped because their hope is no one took the body away. They want to see Jesus again. Not only do they want to anoint him, they need to see him. They need to be with him. And so they run to the tomb, they run inside the tomb, and I think what's interesting is later John runs to the tomb and he stops cold outside of the tomb because he's scared to go in. These women just run in the tomb. (laughs) Run into the tomb, they're puzzled, he's not there, no body, and it says they wondered. That literally means that they were utterly at a loss. Utterly lost about it. Suddenly two angels are standing with them. They drop in fright to the ground. They keep their faces in the ground, which would have been a sign of deep respect, also fear. And then the angels remind them of what Jesus said about rising from the dead. And slowly, with their faces in the ground, it begins to dawn on them, he's not here because he's not dead. He's not dead. He's alive and entrusted with that incredible truth that nobody was dreaming would happen. They run to the disciples. But what we forget to realize is it says here they told everyone. Everyone who was the follower of Jesus, they told on their way and throughout the villages, he's not dead at all. Women participated in Jesus' ministry of redemption. But they were also on the receiving end. Jesus offered forgiveness to women. Turn to chapter 7. Let me talk for a minute, and we'll read a little bit of it in a minute. You read this in your homework, the story of when a Pharisee invited Jesus for a special dinner to his house. Um, There's two main characters in this story. A self-righteous Pharisee named Simon and a sinful woman. Actually, the correct term is a woman of the city, which means she's probably a prostitute and everybody knows who she is. And Jesus wants a relationship with both of them. Here's how we know that. Simon invited him to his house, not because he thought Jesus was the greatest thing in the world. He did it probably to try to entrap him, to judge him, to trick him, but not because he really believed in him. Jesus came anyway, knowing all those things. And this woman, the prostitute, wasn't invited to the party, but Jesus accepts the attention she is going to give him. The setting, Simon's home, the guests are arriving. It was a custom at a dinner party for the guests' feet to be cleaned before a meal because, think about it, they're in these sandals, they're walking. They don't have concrete. They don't have gra- you know, gravel even. They're just walking through mud and dust to get to his house. And so it was customary for someone to wash their feet. Also because they didn't sit in chairs and uh, have their knife and fork like us. They would have a low couch on the ground that they would recline in. 
um, just above the ground. They'd have a table just above the ground that they'd eat. And so they'd lean on their left arm. They would dip foods and eat on their right while their body was close to the table. Their legs were way out here. You didn't want somebody's muddy feet in your lamb stew that you're holding and guarding. So people's feet were washed. Um, Simon did not offer this act of hospitality. And it's pretty puzzling. It'd be like someone coming to our houses today in their coat and you just make them wear it the whole night. <laughs> like you don't notice. Or make a woman keep her purse on her arm all night long. Here's the plot. Envision a large group of Pharisees talking loudly. They're all down low. They're reclining. They're doing this. They're talking over food. And all at once, out of the darkness into the room or the courtyard comes the sinful woman of the city, the probably a prostitute, looking around the room. Now, this was common for people to come if there was a big feast with a special um, person there. People were allowed to kind of come in and out and watch along the walls if people were having a meal together in someone's house. But never a woman and never a prostitute. This was a shock. I think the chit-chat stopped as she came in. They're all low. She's standing tall. She's looking around the room trying to find Jesus. Now, um, she maybe had met Jesus before. We don't know. She'd maybe heard some of Jesus' incredible words. And I believe that probably was the case. When she sees Jesus lying down, she stands at his feet. Everybody else down. She's standing at his feet. She's carrying in her hands a jar of alabaster perfume, um, which she was going to anoint Jesus with. This would have been a real soft white stone. It would have been a long bottle with a long, thin neck, no handles on this bottle, so that they would just break the neck when they wanted to pour out this uh, perfume inside. Now, normally when you would have someone come to a party, we'll see that when we read later, you would be anointed with oil. It would be olive oil. This woman brought expensive perfume in her flask. She's going to anoint Jesus, but she only gets this far. And when she sees him, she just starts weeping. And her tears start falling on Jesus' feet. And Jesus doesn't move his feet. He just leaves them there. I think her tears were a sign of her need for repentance. Her tears were a sign that she knew she needed God and deliverance. And somehow she knew this man could make that happen. And so she weeps over him. Then she stoops down, and she decides, I'm going to dry his feet with my hair. Now, to do that, she had to publicly take her hair down. Again. <laughs> Radical. Not done. Not done in public. She's oblivious to that. She's with Jesus. And Jesus is oblivious to it as well. His attention is on her. So she's wiping his hair dry. And then she begins to kiss his feet. And Jesus tells us later, she kissed them and kissed them and kept kissing them. She didn't just kiss him once. She was pouring out her need for Jesus. 
right then and there. And Jesus didn't move his feet. Finally, she pours that perfume on his feet. Normally, they would have poured this on somebody's head. Why didn't the woman do that? People didn't pour it on your feet. She didn't feel worthy to pour it on his head. So she poured it on his feet, demonstrating humility. And Jesus doesn't move his feet. And Simon can't believe it anymore that Jesus doesn't move his feet. This woman's a sinner. He's, he's letting her touch all over him. And of course, Simon just keeps that thought to himself, but it doesn't matter because Jesus knows exactly what he's thinking. And deduces uh, that you think I'm not a prophet because I'm not moving my feet. So he decides I'm going to tell Simon something. He says, Simon, I'd like to tell you something. Simon says, all right. And he tells a quick parable that there were two men who owed debts. One man's debt was little. One man's debt was two and a half years worth of wages. The lender to these two people decides he's going to forgive the debt and he forgives the debt of both of those men. And Jesus turns to Simon and says, which man out of those two is going to love the lender the most? And you know, it's, it's not rocket science to figure this answer out. But it's funny to me that Simon says, I suppose the one whose debt was bigger. And Jesus says yes, and what Simon doesn't know is with that word, he's unknowingly condemned himself, which we'll see in a minute. But then Simon, uh, Jesus asks Simon a question that we overlook in this story that I think is the most important question of all. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? Because really, Simon didn't. He saw a sinner. He saw a prostitute. He didn't see a person made in the image of God, loved and valued by God himself. He saw what she had been. He could not see what she would be. So then Jesus decides to open up Simon's eyes to the beauty of this woman and the beauty of womanhood. And he reminds Simon of her great kindness and Simon's great lack of kindness. So let's look at verse 44. He turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loves much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. And the woman said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman's actions were about so much more than just cleaning Jesus' feet. And you and I know that. It was an act of worship. It was an act of thanksgiving. It was an act of love. It was an act of humility, of which Simon had none. And when Jesus turns to the woman, 
He forgives what he says are her many sins. He doesn't just say sins, her many sins. And this is the point of the parable that Jesus wants Simon to know. A person who's forgiven much loves more than a person who's forgiven little. And Simon, you're so self-righteous, you don't think you have anything to be forgiven about. And therefore, since you think you don't even have a sin and you can't be forgiven, you love me this much compared to her love. It was this woman's faith in who Jesus was that led to her repentance, her salvation, and her loving response. And I think at this point, probably, Jesus came up off the floor because he'd want to look in that woman's eyes, looked at her face to face, and forgave her sins. And then he said, go in peace. And in the Greek, literally, it's go into peace. Something she'd never experienced before in her life. That's how much Jesus loved women. He forgave her many sins. He forgives our many sins. Jesus also offered healing. Look at Luke 8. Um, Verse 40. Actually, let's go ahead and start in 42. As Jesus was on his way, a crowd almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And then the woman, seeing she couldn't go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. In these narrow streets of an ancient city, if there was a crowd, it meant there was a crush. We find Jesus in the middle of it, many women pressing against him, one, a woman bleeding for 12 years. Now, here's what we need to realize about that. Unclean. That's all anybody thought of her for 12 years. Unclean. Can't touch her. She can't worship. She can't go here. She can't do that. Her family shuns her. 12 years, isolated, no touch. She waited for the perfect time to come to Jesus, hoping that no one would see her in a crowd and even thinking, Jesus doesn't even have to see me. The Gospel of Mark tells us she's thinking, if I could just touch him, I know I will be healed. When she gets close enough, there's a little opening. She reaches out and grabs his garment, the corner of his garment. Some people believe that this meant the hem at the bottom of his garment. Some people believe it meant the fabric that they over their left shoulder and it would hang down low. It sort of makes more sense. That would have been easier to grab hold of. These would have had probably little um, tassels on a blue cord. Numbers 15 told the men to sew these into their garments so that they could be reminded of God's holiness, the blue representing heaven. And it probably looked a little like a flower because that's the root word of a tassel. 
and you were supposed to be reminded of who God is, your need to obey and trust him. A woman reaches out and grabs that. When she does that, touching this part of his garment, she's really illustrating the very thing those tassels were about. Obey God, know God, trust God. The moment she touches him, she's healed forever. But Jesus doesn't want to let it go at that. We know when he says, who touched me, we know Jesus knows. Here's the thing. He wants the woman for many reasons, to come forward. He wants her to publicly announce her faith. He wants her to realize it wasn't his cloak that had magical powers. It was her faith that brought healing to her life. He also wants everyone to see she's healed so she will be shunned no more in the society. And I also think he wanted that personal relationship with her. And he wants to look in the face. When she approaches him in great fear, he takes her fear away immediately by calling her daughter. It's the only time we'll see Jesus call that to someone. Calls her daughter and he says, it's your faith that has healed you. Her life will not be the same. And Jesus does not overlook the suffering of women. He didn't back then. He doesn't today. He heals us. Okay, so what's a woman to do? Why are we creating God's image? Why did Jesus involve women in his life and ministry? And I think this sick woman can answer, and we're going to have three applications here. First of all, we approach Jesus to be made whole. This woman did that in fear and trembling. Because isn't it scary to open those deep wounds in our life that have been bleeding for years? The emotional scars the wrong thoughts about ourselves, the sins against us, the sins we've committed. We don't want to be made whole. If we have to open up those things, we're just going to keep bleeding. We have to approach Jesus. His heart is to make us whole. We see that from these stories. So we can go out and produce fruit for him. Go to him. Sometimes we think I'm going to get healthy apart from deepening my relationship with Jesus. It doesn't happen. And it makes sense. The one who can heal us the best is the one who created us and who knows us the most. Psalm 29 on your verse sheet. Oh, Lord, my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth. You clothed me with joy that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. And then we overcome our fears by faith, and I think we have this on every outline. (laughs) But it's true. We have to keep saying this. We will always have new fears that come in our life because life changes Things are hard. And if we give in to them, we stop living a life of faith. So even in the middle of her fears, this woman exercised her faith. She looked past her circumstances and looked for Jesus in the crowd. Look for Jesus in the sins that crowd our life, in the scars that crowd our life. Look for Jesus, walk past that, exercise that same kind of faith, and believe that Jesus can change our life forever as well. I want to go through life in the midst of those crowded things, looking for Jesus like she did, and grabbing a hold 
of the edge of his robe and doing life with him. Because I know he wants my best. He wants to bless me. And he wants to take me to a different place. And I can count on that. And that is called faith. The result of faith is what he said to her. Go in peace. Look at Psalm 63, 73. No, 63. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And the next one, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish, but as for me, it is good to be near God, just like that woman. And finally, fulfill your calling and bring Jesus into a world that needs him. Once this woman was made whole, do you remember what I just read? What happened to her? She confesses her deep need, her deep hurts to this whole quiet crowd that has stopped around Jesus and this woman. She tells him her need and she tells him of Jesus' great healing. That's our calling. We live out our redemption story in this world, telling people about what Jesus has done for us and what he can do for them. We do that through our words. We do that through our worship. We do that in our church. Um, when our daughter was little, I love this story about her. She was probably five or six. We had the youth group at our house to spend the night. And um, she was there. And they were playing the un game. I don't know if you guys remember this. You had to answer those scary questions on a card and tell your deepest things, thoughts and secrets. Well, she's only like five or so. She gets a card and they read it to her. And it says, um, when all your friends are at a party and you're not there, what do they say about you behind your back? And Cassie thought a minute and said, they say, we wish Cassie was here. <laughs> That's called good self-esteem. When God has healed us and is continuing to heal us, when he has redeemed us, and we don't do a thing about it. It's like he's saying, I wish Susie was here. I've given her gifts to love her kids and them and her tell them about me. I've given her gifts to be a part of the church. I wish Susie was involved in my kingdom work. That's our calling, to tell of his redemption. And finally, remember when Gabriel came to Mary... He said, you're going to have and bear the Messiah. And he called her highly favored because she was going to be used to bring Jesus into our world. And I want to say we are still highly favored today because that's still our job, to bring Jesus into a world that needs him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We just can't imagine life without you being our creator and loving us as you do. May this bring us joy. May we tell others in mighty ways so you can have all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.